We're in our sermon series in Romans. We're now at the end of Romans 13, verses 8 through 14. So we're certainly getting close to the end of the book of Romans. You can find our sermon text, of course, in your bulletin if you want to follow along. If you do not have a Bible, again, Romans 13, verses 8 through 14. This is God's word. Let us give it careful attention. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we ask now that your spirit would attend to the proclamation of your word, that you would Speak faith into the life of those who do not have it, that you would turn their hearts from death unto life through the regenerating work of your spirit as your word is proclaimed. For those who do know you, that you would build that faith up, that you would strengthen it and encourage it, that you would help your people to follow you faithfully and love you all the more because of what you have done for them in Christ their Lord. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So I want to start this morning by way of a reminder of where we are in Paul's great letter to the church at Rome. Romans is all about the gospel of God. It reveals to us why we need salvation through Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. And that is because we are sinners. We are absolutely rotten in sin to our core as humans. We have rebelled against God by nature. We do not seek after God. We have no spark of goodness in our hearts. Our desires are bent away from worshiping God as our creator to worshiping ourselves. But God in his great love for us, gave us Christ who died in our place so that we might be justified, that is to say, made right with God as we are clothed in Christ's righteousness and forgiven of all our sins. And God does that so that we might enjoy him and glorify him forever. That's the gospel that is explained in the first 11 chapters of Romans. It's all about how God shows his love for us. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Now, as we come into Romans 12, Paul starts the second section of his letter. So in the first 11 chapters, 1 through 11, he relates to us how God shows his love for us, beginning in chapter 12 and all the way to the end. Chapter 16, he explains how God's love is shown through us. And that's where we are this morning at the end of Romans 13. We've already seen how God shows his love through his people and how we relate to each other in the church. He gives us gifts so that we might serve one another. We see that in 12, 3 through 8. He also shows us how we might show God's love uh, through us towards those who hate us, who despise us. And he even shows how we show God's love in the way that the church relates to the civil authorities that he has sovereignly appointed to rule this world. That's at the beginning of chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And so now we come to see how God, who has made us his people, how he calls us to show his love through the world, in, or to the world, rather, in general. Now, it should come as no surprise that the world really doesn't understand the love of God. The world, as Paul so aptly explained in Romans 1 through 3, is trapped in the darkness of sin. So they are separated from God, separated from his love. The world is at enmity or an enemy of God. And so any understanding then of the concept of love that we might try to come up with as humans naturally, apart from God's grace in our lives, it is going to be influenced by that corruption of sin. So why is it then that after millennium of human history, we still find new ways to show our cruelty and our hatred towards one another? And why is it that after all of our philosophizing and our poetry and our art, we still can't grasp the concept of what love actually is? No, love is not love. That's just a confusing pop psychology statement that carefully masks selfishness rather than being a true definition of God's love. And love, unlike what the Beatles told us, is not all you need to fix the world's problems. We need the mercy and the grace of God for that. You see, we've been trying for such a long time to make everything that is wrong right again and we think that if we can just figure out this love thing, we can do it. But all we end up doing is twisting this corrupt world into a far greater mess through our efforts. You see, what the world doesn't need is mere love or our understanding of it. It needs God's love. And we see God's love when we see his truth. We don't get to decide what love is because God has already determined what love is for God is love himself, 1 John 4, 8. So what Paul shows us here then in this text and helps us to see is that God shows his love to the world when his people follow his law and live in his light. That's the big idea of this text. God shows his love to the world when his people follow his law and 
live in his light. In other words, the church is the reflective lens of God's redeeming love towards the world, and we reflect that when we obey his commandments and walk in his truth. So we don't get to manufacture our own sense of what love is. We don't base it on our feelings or what the culture tells us love is. Rather, we show God's love by doing what God has called us to do as his creation. And so the first thing we see is we love through God's law. Verse 8, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. We show God's love to the world when we follow his law. When Paul tells us uh, to owe no one anything, he isn't saying that we are to never enter into any kind of debt. That would be contrary to other parts of Scripture. And the Scripture is never contrary to itself. In fact, we see that borrowing for real needs is not only permissible, but sometimes a good thing. But what Paul is saying here is that as a Christian, if you have a debt, you better be sure to repay it. Don't owe more than you can repay. In other words, be responsible. And that's the point he's getting at. Be responsible. He wants to zero in on this idea of responsibility that we have to show love to our neighbors. So he says, owe no one anything except, except to love each other. In other words, there is a debt of love that we owe towards one another. For we've all been made in God's image. So how do you pay that obligation then? Paul says, through God's law. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. You see, the commandments of God are all about God's love. They're God's definition of what love is, of how we're to show love to one another, how we exercise our care and our compassion. So love is more than just mere affections of the heart. It's action. It is real, intangible ways in which we serve and relate to one another. Love is at the heart and soul of all God's commandments. It does not displace or dispense of God's law, nor is it the full content of God's law. But as Paul teaches us, it fulfills the law. When you follow God's law, you reflect his love towards others. And so Paul gives us some examples of how love is the fulfillment of the law. He says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you probably recognize these as some of the Ten Commandments or the table of God's law. Paul is only giving us a partial list here, but in doing that, he doesn't mean to say these are the only commandments that show us how to love one another. In fact, he says any other commandment, he says, look, I'm going to mention some, but there's others. And they're all summed up in this one word, to love your neighbor as yourself. And these are wonderful examples that he gives of how we might love our neighbor as ourselves. You see, all God's commandments 
in the, in the Ten Commandments contain implied duties that flow from the negative restrictions. So there's, there's negative restrictions, things that are forbidden, and there are positive requirements. And these are explained and set forth and developed all through Scripture, not just in the Ten Commandments. The Westminster Larger Catechism explains it well. It says this, that where a duty is commanded of us, the contrary sin is forbidden. And where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is commanded. Now, we know this is true because we see it all through the Bible. As there are further exhortations and commands and promises and instructions related on how we are to live in this world, and they all flow from this legal table of God's love, this table of God's law as contained in the Ten Commandments. And the summary of them, as Paul told us, is to love your neighbor as yourselves. And it's not hard to see then with these commandments that he even mentions here, the corresponding duties and the sins forbidden, how both of those show love to our neighbors, to each other, and to this world. I mean, first, consider the duties then of this seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. What are they? Well, the purity of our bodies, our affections, our words, our behaviors. We're to maintain purity not just in ourselves, but to preserve it in others, to not defile others, to keep ourselves and them from sexual sin. Furthermore, another duty that is implied and commanded in Scripture, that unless one has the gift of celibacy, it is a duty required by this commandment to seek out marriage. It's most certainly ordered by God as a means of growing his people in this world. And what is forbidden by this commandment? Well, not just adultery, but all sexual sins, incest, rape, homosexuality, natural lust, unclean thoughts, filthy communications. These things do not show love towards others, but instead use others to selfishly satisfy our own corrupt desires. But what about the sixth commandment Paul mentions? You shall not murder. How does it show love? Well, its duties require the preserving of life, which includes caring for those who are in danger or sick, defending them against violence, care for those who lack in food and shelter, and forbidden, of course, is the taking of any life unjustly, and also the neglect of the means of preserving life, not doing what is right, as well as sinful anger. And look at one more of these commandments Paul mentioned. We'll not look at all of them, but uh, this commandment to not steal. It's easy to see that love is the fulfillment of this law and the duties required, which are truth and, and faithfulness and justice in all of our contracts, all of our commerce, all of our business. We're not seeking to cheat or get the better of others. And we give and we lend freely as a duty of this commandment according to our abilities, which is an expression of love. And what is forbidden? Well, robbery, slavery, fraud, deceitful dealings, bribery. And so it's easy to see then 
that God's love is determined by his moral standard. John Stott said it this way. He said, the truth is that love cannot manage on its own without an objective moral standard. That is why Paul wrote, not that love is the end of the law, but that love is the fulfillment of the law. For love and law need each other. Love needs law for its direction, while law needs love for its inspiration. This love does no wrong, as Paul says, no harm towards its neighbor. So he says, love them through God's law. Now, if love is the fulfillment of the law, then we as humans, of course, do not have the right or authority to determine what love is and what it is not. God's already done that. But that's a good thing. It means that we don't have to figure it out. We don't have to try to understand what love is. God's already shown us. And the love we show then is a reflection of God's love towards his creation. It is his provision to find joy and peace and kindness in this life that he has given us. And that's what this world needs. It needs that kind of love. It needs to see God's love as it is fulfilled through his law. Secondly, we see, though, that the world needs God's light, and we are called as God's people then to not just love through his law, but to live in God's light. Unlike the world which sits under this veil of sin's darkness, the people of God's kingdom have been shown a great light. The light of Christ has pierced the darkness and calls us to himself so that we might reflect his light to the sin-darkened world. And we do that when we live in the light of the Lord. So how do you do that? Well, first, Paul shows us that we live according to what we know. You live according to what you know. Verse 11, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. You can sense the urgency in Paul's words here. He's saying, you know what time it is. You know the lateness of the hour. And he's speaking of a very distinct time of which believers in Christ are aware. And what time is that? Is It is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is an, an, an eschatological term or expression. That is to say it's a term related to the end of all things. And you find it throughout both the Old and the New Testament. And the day of the Lord is when God enters in a specific way, uh, in a special way, an extraordinary way into history to bring about his redeeming purposes. And we know that that is what Paul is speaking of here because he says that your salvation as a follower of Jesus Christ is nearer to you now than from when you first believed. And he means final salvation, the completion of God's redeeming work through Jesus Christ. You see, we have this tendency to reduce salvation down to something like justification, which is being made right with God. But salvation is far broader than that. It is all that God has done 
and all that God is doing and all that God will do to save you from your sin, to make a people for his name. That's salvation. And that includes, of course, justification. It includes sanctification, which is the work of God's grace, whereby as believers we are made more and more like Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. It includes also what we call glorification. That is the final restoration of all creation to be what God has designed it to be. And that's what Paul is saying is near. He's saying the completion, the consummation of your salvation is really close. It's closer than when you first believed. Everything else in God's timeline of redemption has already been done. It's already complete. Jesus came in the flesh, born of a virgin, born under the law, so that he might redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming that curse for us. Jesus died in the place of all those whom he redeems, suffering the judgment that they justly deserve for their sin. And Jesus has risen, thereby conquering the grave and putting it in subjection under his feet. And Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father on high to reign over his kingdom and prepare for us a place to dwell with him. And so the only thing left on the timeline of salvation is that he comes again to receive us to himself and to bring about his final judgment and to remove from all the world that stain of sin forever. So that final salvation, that event is nearer than when you first believed. That's the hour, that's the time that we are aware of. In the Bible, it's referred metaphorically sometimes to as a millennium, not a literal 1,000 years, but a spiritual time of Christ's reign as he right now already is building his kingdom, building up his church, raising up his people, calling his elect to himself, saving them by his grace, bringing all nations under him until he will return and reign with everlasting peace. In other words, God's light in Christ is already shining in this world of darkness, and it grows every day. It's getting all the brighter every day till that glorious day when the Son of God completely dispels the darkness with his glorious light. And so Paul says, the night, the darkness, it's far gone. The day is at hand. The long night of sin, it's, it's, it's fading away. And the daylight of redemption has begun to break on the horizon, pushing away that darkness. In evil and sin, and death's time, oh, it's coming to a close. That's what we know. That's what we know. If we are by God's grace united to Jesus as our Savior, yes, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And so what does that mean for you then as the people of God? It means this. You are to awaken and to advance. 
Paul says the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. We cannot slumber as a church in complacency. We cannot be wearied with the drowsiness of sin. The night is ending. It's time to get up, to wake up. Oh, far too often, we look at the evil in this world and sin's darkness, and it, we feel overwhelmed by it. And we fail to look up at the horizon and see the light that is already shining, that the day is coming. So he says, wake up. See the glory of the Lord is already at work in this world and advance. He implies getting to work, getting busy, being busy with the tasks of the day, rather being concerned to sleep during the night. This is a call to action, a call to labor, a call to serve. When God created the world, he set for us forth a pattern of work and of rest. First, of course, there was chaos. There was darkness. There was void. And then God enters into that with his word, and he speaks. And with the power of his word, all that exists is brought forth out of nothing in the space of six days. God worked. He labored. He fashioned things. But then, on the seventh day, God rested. When we go to Hebrews 4, we see that God has promised a rest for those whom he saves. We see there is a rest that yet remains. That is our hope. That is the, the sunlight that is arising on the horizon. We taste some of that rest when we gather to worship on the Lord's day, but we long for its fullness. And while we long for it, Hebrews 4.11 tells us that we are to strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by some sort of disobedience. The idea is, is that we are also in this time of striving. We are working. We are in the six days of labor waiting for that great eternal rest that is coming, but not yet here. We can see it, the light shining upon us. But it's not quite there yet. It is close, closer than when you first believed. And so Paul says, awaken, get busy, be active in the work to which God has called you. Now, for all of us, of course, that work looks differently. Of course, we are called to the same things, to pray, to serve one another, to love one another, to know his word, to worship him. But there are other ways we serve. We saw that earlier in, in Romans 12, that God gives different gifts to each person to serve one another in love. We all have a work to do because the day is at hand. And so we gather and we participate together in the great work of the church to know Christ and to make him known to the nations. So Paul says, Advance, awaken, and advance. Cast off the works of darkness and put on, he says, the armor of light. It means go about that work of leaving behind your sin, the clothing of darkness, and instead get dressed in the armor of God's light, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who is your Lord and Savior. How do we do that? Well, it's pretty simple when you look in the Word, isn't it? 
to the means God gives you. It is his word, it is sacrament, it is prayer, it is fellowship. These are the things God uses to do build up your faith in Christ and minister the grace of his gospel in your heart so that you can hold fast to Jesus who is your righteousness. That is God's light shining upon you. And when we do that, yes, we get a little taste of that rest that is promised, which is why the Lord's Day, I believe, is a Sabbath for the Christian. But our worship on the Sabbath is, is not the only way that we put, on the, put off the works of darkness and put on the armor of God's light. We do that through our faith in Christ throughout the week, shining forth the light of God that is ours in Christ. We reflect Jesus to the world in the way that we live our lives. Let me give you one example. And this is for you who are parents, especially of small children. You do not raise your covenant children only with the purpose of being successful in this temporary life. Of course you want to see that. That is not a bad goal. But that is not the only goal, nor is it the primary goal, is it? Rather, it is to grow in them the faith and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. All that you are working to do, all of that discipline, all that exhausts you as a parent, it's not simply to get your kids to conform to your standard that you've set for them, but it's to show them Jesus, to show them Christ, to explain the reality of sin and the beauty of his grace, uh, of the grace of God. And if you're not a parent, or your kids maybe are now grown and not at home, there are still many, many ways in which through our lives we shine forth the light of God to the darkness of this world. You live in God's light by living according to what you know. And you live in God's light by living according to who you know. And that is Jesus Christ. So Paul says in Romans 13, 13 and 14, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Walk properly, walk in order, as in the daytime, in the light of Christ, in the light of his salvation, and the light of him who you already know, who has shown himself to you and made you his own. Not in the works of darkness, of which he names some here, but by putting on the Lord and making no provision, no thought, that is, for the flesh, for the corruption of sin. In other words, he's, what he's saying is be satisfied in Jesus, not in your sin. Notice Paul speaks of desires or, or longings here. It's the things that we crave. The flesh, of course, craves sin. It wants to abuse God's gracious provisions of food and drink and sex and relationships to bring about strife and conflicts and jealousy and hatred. Your flesh wants to be the object of devotion and praise. It wants to be your God. And when we sin, that's what we do. We make our flesh our God. Sin is idolatry. It's the idolatry that engulfs this entire world. But as God's people, we don't walk in that idolatry. 
We are called to live in the light, the light of the gospel, the light of God's truth, the light of Christ by putting him on in faith. And in so doing, we are that city that shines on a, on a hill. And what did Jesus say to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, you are the light of the world. He didn't say you become or you make yourselves the light. He said, you, you church, you my disciples, are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all that are in the house. And so in the same way, he says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, that light that you shine forth, it is the light of God's work within you. It is Christ Jesus. So as Christians, we illumine, illuminate the, the goodness and the mercy of Jesus for this world to see. We put it on display. We show a bright and better way to live, a way that play, points to the glorious enjoyment of God forever and ever, that delights in his provision, that uses them according to his truth. God shows his love to the world when his people love through his law and live in his light. And so be what you already are. Love through God's law. Live in the light of Christ. Reflect Jesus to the world as the Savior it needs. You see, Jesus loved by fulfilling the law. He fulfilled it in our place. He kept it perfectly for us so that we can be declared righteous in him. And Jesus lived in the light of God's truth, for he is truth itself. And he to whom we are united as his people reflect that light to the world. And so let us show then God's love. Let us show God's light by being who God has made us to be. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We're thankful for the gospel that you redeem us from all our sin, from all of our darkness, from all the ways we have fallen you. We're thankful that you have shined within our hearts that light of truth so that it might reflect forth to this world and push aside the darkness. We're thankful that our salvation is nearer than it has ever been before. We're thankful that the light of your uh, glorious promises are going to be fully fulfilled, and we see it on the horizon. We know it is there. And so may we be compelled by your love and your mercy and grace to show forth this love by loving our neighbors as ourselves through your law, your truth, your light. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand in response, sing this song, this hymn, that is a prayer asking God, our great Jehovah, to guide us through